Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Roxanne Escabalas, the editor of the World Today magazine, and I'm stepping in for Bronwyn Maddox, who will be back in the presenter's chair next week at our London conference. But for now, on today's podcast, we'll be taking a look at the defence and security of Europe. More specifically, we'll be diving into the UK's role in the defence of the Nordic region. After Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014, the UK formed the Joint Expeditionary Force, known as the JEF. This is the multinational force made up of 10 European nations, which is designed to deploy rapidly if needed. With Kyiv's counteroffensive against Russia now underway, we'll be exploring how Europe's security is being reshaped by events in Ukraine. What London and the Jeff states are looking to achieve by operating more closely in the north, and what are the balance of forces between NATO and Russia in the Baltic, now that Finland is a member of the alliance. Also this week, we'll look ahead to the NATO summit in Vilnius, which takes place next month. With Finland now a member of NATO, but Sweden still out in the cold, our alliance politics leaving NATO's northern flank vulnerable. What role are key alliance members like France and the UK playing ahead of Vilnius? And in the face of intense fighting in the east, what kind of plan, if any, might the alliance offer Ukraine? I've got three guests joining me this week to explore these topics. Here in London, we have Olivia O'Sullivan. She's the new director of Chatham House's UK and the World programme. It's her first time on the podcast, so welcome, Olivia. Thank you. I also have Alice Bion-Galland. She's a research fellow with our Europe programme. Hello, Alice. Hi, thanks to be back. And last but certainly not least, joining us down the line from Finland is Matti Pesu, a researcher with the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. Welcome, Matti. Thank you so much and greeting from Helsinki. Fantastic. Let's start first then with the Nordic region. Alice, I'm going to ask you first, what does the region expect from the UK and what's the strategic value of the region to the UK? So that's a very good question. And I think the region which we would broadly describe as Nordic Baltic region is of particular strategic interest for the UK. The UK defines the region as its sort of a close neighborhood where it has specific strategic interests, including in the high north and the Arctic. And the British Ministry of Defense has a specific strategy on the high north and the Arctic. So there is a sort of close alignment of sort of strategy and vision between the UK and those countries. They're very close in terms of their support for Ukraine, how they perceive the Russian threat, and they also work together within the region, either bilaterally with the UK within NATO, for those who are NATO allies, but also through the small formats. And you mentioned the Joint Expeditionary Force, which I think we'll get back to. So the UK has been very active in this region. And in the recent refresh of the integrated review a couple of months ago, it identified its contribution to Northern Europe as sort of a a unique selling point of what the UK is doing. So there is also particular British leadership in the region. In terms of expectations from the country, they all welcome British leadership bilaterally at NATO through the air policing mission, but also the enhanced presence in Estonia and through the multilateral formats that we've talked about. But then it differs a little bit because obviously the UK gave security guarantees to Sweden and to Finland before their NATO accession, but it's working particularly closely with Estonia in the Baltics because the UK is the framework nation for the enhanced presence there where it leads a multinational battle group. So the UK is really seen as a reliable partner in the region 
but one that has global ambitions and limited means. So regional partners really expect the UK to keep punching above its weight, meeting its NATO commitment, while being really aware of sort of the limits on bridge capacity and the fact that elsewhere in the region, but also in the world, the Brits are also needed and also want to be active. So I think there is this sort of balance between means and expectation, but the UK remains a very valued partner. So let's just stick here with the Jeff for a minute and this idea of balance between resources and expectations. You have the expeditionary force, which is 10 nations, and then you also have NATO. And so they sort of act together. And can you just tell us about the balance between these two groups and you know what does each offer? Sure. So obviously... We all know what NATO is, sort of political military alliance, which relies on Article 5 and the nuclear security guarantee and the territorial defense. So the GEF is actually thought as a framework concept within NATO framework, which means that the UK sort of came up with the idea alongside other lead nations within NATO. But obviously, the GEF format is op- was open to non-NATO allies as well, which unable to bring countries such as Sweden and Finland. GEF itself has grown quite interestingly over the past couple of years and especially since the UK left the EU and also since the aggression and the invasion of Ukraine. It's become more of a political and strategic forum. We now have Jeff heads of state meeting, which wasn't the case before. And the topics that the Jeff countries discuss together is also evolving. Very recently, there was a Jeff meeting in Amsterdam where the focus was really on hybrid issues. So not just on sort of expeditionary and military component, but really how those countries around the Baltic Sea can tackle, for instance, threats to critical undersea infrastructures. We all heard about the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline. This is a very particular concern for those nations and for NATO. So this is something that, for instance, Jeff is looking at in complementarity to the work that NATO is doing and that states are doing together bilaterally, but through other forms for uh, like the Northern Group, etc. And Alice, there has been talk in the UK of having Ukraine join Jeff. How would that work? So this is a part of a lot of interesting ideas that are being floated around in how to use Jeff to strengthen security in the region and also as a way for the UK to show its commitment to the security and stability of the region. I think in this case, the idea was floated around vis-a-vis Ukraine, also vis-a-vis Poland. Obviously, those countries are a bit further away from the region. Regarding Poland... The Polish priority is always more on the land component. So I think, you know, there could be a discussion there, but I'm not sure this is top priority for either the Jeff countries or even Poland itself. And regarding Ukraine, obviously, you know, Ukrainian armed forces have a lot to do right now. I think there is a symbolic dimension to maybe offering this to the Ukrainians. Not necessarily that this is something that they could pick up now. It could be a sign of sort of British engagement and commitment to the region, though it doesn't really sort of put on the side discussions about Ukraine-NATO accession, which I think is, you know, the one thing that the Ukrainians actually want. So any type of Jeff engagement wouldn't replace that. But there is also work within Jeff about interoperability, about doctrine, about bringing sort of the armed forces of those countries closer together and working in more familiarity. So this is something that I think the Ukrainians would be interested in, but I'm just not sure whether it's sort of top priority now. It may be a good messaging from the UK, but I'm not really sure if that meets the needs of the Ukrainians at the moment. Thanks. You bring up a good point about this sort of embrace of Ukraine from NATO. We'll explore that in a little bit. First, let's just stick with the Nordic region, with the UK showing leadership in Jeff and also in Ukraine. But there's been a lot of talk about the tilt to the Indo-Pacific by the UK. But is the Nordic a more natural space for Britain to operate in security-wise? 
That's a really good question. Thanks, Roxanne. And I think maybe just to deal with the Indo-Pacific tilt first, there was a lot of scepticism when that was first set out by the UK in their integrated review in 2021. If we understand a tilt to mean a greater military and diplomatic presence in a region that is likely to be very strategically and economically important in the world for the next decade, you know, if not century, then there have been some very coherent strategic steps that the UK has taken to achieve that. It's important to say that the tilt is not just about military presence. So your question was about sort of whether the UK can manage military commitments in sort of both regions or in all the regions that it's interested in. But a part of the Indo-Pacific tilt has been doing things like joining the CPTP, which is the big free trade agreement in the region. It's been about becoming what's called a dialogue partner to the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which is one of the crucial multilateral forums in the region. And it's been about increasing its diplomatic presence there as well. That's sort of a slightly different way of engaging that has also been a part of that tilt, which is important to kind of acknowledge. But of course, it has also involved very significant military commitments. So particularly AUKUS, which is the trilateral um, project with Australia and the US to provide nuclear submarines, the Global Combat Air Programme, which is this joint development project with Italy and Japan to develop a next generation fighter jet. And the UK deployed its carrier strike group in the region in 2021. And I'm just kind of going through all of that in order to underline that the government now, in the most recent refresh to the integrated review, it likes to say the tilt is done. And it has taken all those steps. They are, you know, they add up to a coherent and strategic approach, I think. But when we say done, what they've actually done is made some very significant ongoing commitments, practically to two very complex shared procurement challenges with countries, Australia and the US, and then with the combat air programme, Italy and Japan. That It sounds like a sort of very workaday thing to say, but they're very far away. They have different political cultures, resource constraints. Military procurement is very complex and the UK has had problems with it in the past. So we've kind of signed up to what will be decades-long projects. There's lots of opportunities there, but it also will be challenging to deliver those commitments. We've also implicitly made commitments to having a long-term role in the region. So I've sort of gone through all of that just in order to underline that what the UK has committed to in the Indo-Pacific is significant. However, it's probably important to say it's not a kind of binary choice between making commitments in the Indo-Pacific and having this role in the Nordic Baltic security. But to your question, you know, the UK's role, especially in the GEF, The initial thinking there was having these kind of groupings like the GEF. The purpose of that concept was to use existing group of nations that kind of maybe already cooperate with each other or have some interoperability. So it's a little bit easier in some ways for the UK to sort of lead in the GEF and cooperate with nations in the GEF. And as Alice has been underlining, it's nations with kind of shared values, quite a consistent shared response to Russia. So these are just very different challenges. Having said that, the big issue is just going to be having the resources to serve all of this. Even if we took the Indo-Pacific tilt out of the equation, the UK is in a very difficult resource situation. We're expecting a defence command paper soon, which, given where we are in the electoral cycle, I think might swerve some of those big choices about what is the UK committing to and where does it need to kind of make difficult choices about spending. And it's probably going to end up being a question for the next government whether the UK can manage all these different commitments. Yes, maybe just to comment on that, I mean, I really agree with what Olivia is saying. And I think as seen from a sort of Nordic-Baltic perspective, there is a lot of following of the debate around the defence budget in the UK and the fact that the UK has taken a lot of commitments that will need to be funded and that the current sort of funding trajectory is maybe not meeting those goals. But at the same time, partners in the region are not a single block. And obviously, you know, 
the Baltic countries, especially Estonia, would like the UK to focus more on the land component, whereas, you know, countries like Norway is happy to work with the UK more on sort of naval and air assets. So different parts of the region have different requirements and the UK is supposed to balance a little bit of that in a very difficult sort of financial context, which is a source of sort of concern for the region while still having quite a lot of trust in the UK's ability to deliver. So I think it's just about balancing. Let's stick it with that trust. I want to go to Matty now in Helsinki. What is the view from Helsinki when it comes to Britain and its role in the region? I'd say that the UK is increasingly seen as a security provider. And in, in Finland, this view was reinforced by the Boer and the U- leadership that the UK has demonstrated and also security guarantees that Alice referred to. From more more like concrete terms, I think in Finland, there's at least in Finland, there's now some rethinking going on that, that what's the UK role or what are the expectations towards the UK or the Jeff more broadly. And now military integration into NATO, rapidly deepening Nordic defense cooperation, finalizing defense cooperation agreement with the US. These are seen as urgent priorities. And then maybe the UK and the Jeff are in the second category, but in the top category, nevertheless, in the following years, countries like Finland, maybe especially Finland and Sweden as newcomers in NATO, then will express their concrete wishes for the UK. But broadly speaking, UK is seen as a really key ally. Let's just stick in Finland for a minute. What influence does Russia have now in the Baltic and in that region, now that almost all neighboring states are in NATO? Both in diplomatic and military terms, Russia's influence is really diminishing. I'd say Finland's and Sweden's NATO accession is testament to this. And this is a longer process. So since 2014, the views here in the region have increasingly got more more critical towards Russia. And one could argue that Russia's policies and actions have been really counterproductive since its foothold has really diminished here in the north. And Finland has been a country that traditionally has been, to some extent, attentive to Russia's security interests. But now this is history and the political relationship is also non-existent. So I think these developments speak volumes on, on how Russia is seen here adversarial relationship at the moment, let's put it that way. Earlier, we heard Alice talk about the strategic value of the high north and the Arctic. Now we have the seeming unity of defense and security up in the north. What does that actually mean for the Arctic as a geopolitical space? The Arctic is its less and less exceptional area of low tensions. I think it's been geopoliticized and it should be treated as a geostrategic area. Both Russia and then NATO have strong strategic interest in the region. And now the alliance is really historically well placed to address security concerns and security challenges in the region. And now I think countries like Finland should be pushing and I think are pushing NATO to take a more prominent role in the European Arctic. Just to come in there off the back of Matty's point, it's maybe worth bringing up because your question earlier, Roxana, was about how the UK balances security interests in the Indo-Pacific and in Europe. But what Matty was talking about, the increasing geopolitical tensions in the Arctic, they're not just European. So China um, gained what's called observer status on the Arctic Council in 2013. There's been some discussion in China of what 
they're calling a sort of polar silk road, similar to the kind of Belt and Road Initiative, where China made a lot of infrastructure investments and gave a lot of loans to developing countries in its region and in the global south. So China has also been thinking about sort of investments in infrastructure in the Arctic, having more of a presence in the Arctic, as of course Russia has. And of course, there are you know a number of overlapping territorial claims in the Arctic, which is as the sea ice is melting and potential sea routes are changing, that's sort of rising tensions. But it's worth saying there's a kind of Indo-Pacific element here too, because China has this increasing international presence and this kind of interest in regions where we wouldn't, I guess, maybe, you know, 10, 20 years ago have thought about China challenging us. Just to maybe throw another element on that sort of pile of issues in the Arctic is the climate element, of course, because climate security is becoming a sort of core issue that even NATO is looking at. And in the new strategic concept that allies agreed on in Madrid last year, climate security featured more importantly. And obviously, the Arctic is an area where this feature is particularly and the UK and the British MOD has been thinking about climate security, maybe more than other allies and other big allies. So I think this is really something that is also of particular interest to the UK. Just building on Matt's point about NATO's role, I think the Arctic is one of the issues that allies know they need to deal with more, but there needs to be a very careful and balanced approach. It wasn't extremely present in the strategic concept. I think this is one of the big topics that will be on the table after Vilnius, where allies know that they need to look into with a bit more depth. But obviously, once Sweden is also part of the alliance, then you can have maybe a more coherent discussion. But I think allies will be waiting for some type of lead or messaging from the Arctic allies in terms of what do they want from NATO? How much NATO involvement do they want in the region? Because they've been managing this region in a very good way for a long time. So it's just about making sure that more NATO involvement doesn't increase the tensions in a region that, as both Matt and Olivia said, is increasingly becoming sort of strategic for a lot of different players. So I think the UK and other allies will be waiting for sort of signals from the Arctic states in terms of what they want and what they expect in the region. Well, let's stick with NATO because there's a summit next month for two days from the 11th of July in Vilnius. Olivia, what can the UK bring to the NATO summit in Vilnius next month? I think the UK is coming to Vilnius with the kind of line that they have been very good citizens of NATO, that they have been, you know, defence spending, although we said earlier the UK has made a lot of commitments and might be seeing shortfalls, defence spending has hovered at around 2% of GDP. As we said, the UK has had this very strong presence in the enhanced forward presence in Estonia, it's leading that grouping. And of course, it's had this kind of leadership role in Jeff. So I think there's a sense that the UK has taken on a lot of commitments and has at least made progress on many of them. And it won't necessarily be looking to take on more, but it will be trying to kind of rally and galvanise others to do more. I think maybe, you know, it We'll see how the summit itself plays out. But something that the UK has consistently been doing in NATO is sort of putting maybe more Indo-Pacific issues on the agenda and sort of bringing those to NATO and using NATO as a format to sort of discuss those issues and bring those issues to the fore. Matty, this will be the first NATO summit with Finland as a member. Can you tell us what is on Finnish minds? The first point is that I think it's still to some extent sinking in that Finland now as an ally has agency. And, and and this is indeed the first summit. But the priorities are rather clear. So Finland joined the alliance in order, or, order to bolster its deterrence. So whatever happens in NATO's deterrence and defense agenda is of value for Finland. And I think Finland is just expecting to learn how NATO will implement the ambitious deterrence and defense agenda in the future. 
And then the second key priority will be quite obviously Swedish NATO membership. So Finland really want to get the Swedes in. And there are political reasons for that, but it's also a strategic and military question for Finland. So now as an ally, now that Finland is in the alliance, NATO will extend its military plans, operational plans over Finland. Finland will be included. But if you look at the map, you understand that it's quite hard to reinforce Finland if Sweden is not somehow included in the plans. So that's why there is this pretty urgent concern or urgent interest to to have Sweden as an ally as soon as possible. So you bring up Sweden. Alice, earlier you were talking as if Swedish membership is going to happen. Tell us why you feel so optimistic about that. What obstacles have to be overcome for that to happen? So I think it will eventually happen. The question is more about the when and the time frame. And obviously, I mean, building on what Matthew was saying, I think the overwhelming majority of allies want Sweden to join the alliance. So now the question is more how much progress can be made with Turkey. You know, I mean, everyone knows that this is the main issue on the table. Hungary also still hasn't ratified the accession protocol, but this is, I think, a sort of smaller issue on the agenda. So there have been a lot of high-level discussion between Sweden and Turkey. The Secretary General Stoltenberg has been very active in trying to push this agenda forward. And all allies, including the United States, have been very clear that, you know, this is undermining NATO unity and it's undermining the strong message that the alliance should be sending to Russia and to to anyone else that is looking. So this is definitely a a priority going towards Vilnius. Will there be an agreement before Vilnius? That's a little bit unclear. Will there be a sort of dramatic agreement at Vilnius? That also could be an option because a lot happened in the margin of the summit in, in Madrid. So I think there will be a lot of focus on that now in the weeks, in the run up to Vilnius, in Vilnius itself. I think it would be obviously seen as a failure for the alliance to not be able to accept Sweden in. And as Matthew was saying, one of the big things that allies will do at the summit in Vilnius is to adopt the new regional plans, which means, you know, how do we defend the alliance differently in this sort of a more contested environment and with Sweden still out, but Finland in. And, you know, adopting new plans that will need to be changed again once Sweden joins is obviously not ideal. And this is something that allies have been debating. So I think this will definitely be one of the issues on the agenda at Vilnius. For a final question, I was going to ask each of you, will Ukraine join NATO by 2030? Olivia? I'd be cautious. It's been a very interesting discussion, right, because the UK Foreign Secretary James Cleverly said at the Ukraine Recovery Conference just this past week that the UK would be very supportive of a fast-tracked accession to NATO for Ukraine. But of course, other European allies have been cautious. The US has been cautious because that might constitute escalation with Russia. And even Cleverly's sort of wording there is interesting because when he's talking about fast-tracking accession, he's referring to the idea that Ukraine could skip some of the traditional stages in the NATO membership process. But that's still not a time frame with dates, which is more what Ukraine has been looking for. So I think there's a kind of desire to have this very positive messaging around this, keep up momentum around this, but there's still aren't a lot of specifics precisely because of that caution. And, you know, what most allies have been saying is they want to focus on Ukraine victory, you know, first before thinking about sort of NATO accession. So so I'm cautious about that time frame. Olivia's cautious. Matty? Yeah, I'm also pretty cautious, although I personally would love to see Ukraine as an ally. 
biggest question here is the U.S. We know that potential Ukrainian membership is a really divisive issue in the alliance and having Ukraine in would necessitate very strong U.S. leadership. It's hard to see that the administrations after this administration would be more pro-Ukrainian membership. So this is maybe the biggest issue. So U.S. Mm-hmm. leadership is putting the brakes perhaps a little bit on Ukraine membership. And as we know, we'll be facing an unpredictable election in the U.S. next year. Alice, will Ukraine join NATO by 2030? So I think in terms of time frame, I wouldn't really focus on that one. I would focus on, you know, when will the war end? Because I think that's the real question. Because today, both the Ukrainians and allies agree that, you know, there is no discussion about, you know, Ukraine joining NATO now. The discussion is about join Ukraine joining NATO right after the war, potentially the day after a ceasefire is signed. So the real question is, how long will this war go on for? And this is something that obviously, you know, we don't really know at this moment. We're all hoping that the counteroffensive will be efficient, but it will be a long process. You know, it's not going to be an easy win. It will be a very long process. Everyone obviously hopes this doesn't turn into a frozen conflict, but I think this is the key issue. Even the Ukrainians are not saying, you know, we want to be in NATO right now, and they're very aware more than we are of the risk, you know, of escalation, etc. So the question is more, how long will the conflict go on for, which will then have an impact on Ukraine membership. But I think, I mean, I'm obviously cautious because we don't know how the war will develop, but I'm optimistic in the sense that I see interesting and positive development in Europe in terms of different countries' position. Obviously, you know, the US has been cautious, Germany as well. I think France is moving a little bit on on that topic. We heard President Macron in Bratislava a couple of weeks ago, you know, saying we need to make more progress on Ukrainian membership to NATO. We need to look at more specific security guarantees. So I think minds are changing a little bit because a lot of allies, including the ones in Western Europe that you know haven't been pushing for that as strong, realize that the current position isn't sustainable and that maybe we need to start rethinking a little bit how we do things. So I'm quite optimistic because I see things shifting a little bit, but then proper accession and integration into NATO will have to be after the war. So I think that's the timing I would focus on. So when and how will the war in Ukraine end? I mean, that's a topic for about 10 different podcasts. If I had the answer to that question, I think, yeah, that would be good. But unfortunately, I don't. Well, we'll leave it there that on that cliffhanger for now. A big thank you to all my guests, Olivia O'Sullivan, Alice Bion-Galland in London and Matti Pesu from Finland. Do follow them all on Twitter. We'll put the links in the show notes. And a reminder that you can find all of Chatham House's podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all major podcast platforms, as well as through our social media channels. So please do like, follow and subscribe and leave us a review if you feel so inclined. To read more from our experts or to find out more about our events or to become a member, and we'd love to have you, don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org. It's updated daily with views and analysis from all of our experts and more. Next week, Bronwyn Maddox will be back in the chair and talking to Gary Kasparov, Germany's environment czar Jennifer Morgan, and the FT's Martin Wolf. That'll all be from our London conference. Until then, goodbye from me, Roxanne Escabalis, and thanks for listening. Music.